chapter 2, um, that's where we're going to be. Now, uh, let me get there first. Okay, Romans chapter 2. As you're uh, turning there, uh, let me just uh, say a couple of things. Um, one, you know, there's, a, uh, there's kind of a, a nasty uh, belief in evangelical circles. It's kind of been growing over the last uh, few decades um, that says this. It says, in the end, uh, in God's final judgment on this world, uh, that God's grace is going to triumph over his justice, as though the two things uh, are opposed to each other, okay? And that the final judgment isn't actually final. And that some, that some people um, are saying that somehow in the end, those who have not embraced Christ and submitted to him as Lord uh, in this life will be in God's mercy, embraced by him at the judgment. That, that, uh, they're teaching that somehow judgment isn't final and that God's grace will win over God's judgment. That sooner or later, most, if not all, will be redeemed. They'll, they'll not undergo the punishment of God's justice, of God's wrath. There, there are a lot of different people from a, dot, a lot of different camps that are saying this, but ultimately they're saying essentially the same thing. Former pastor, current heretic, Rob Bell says this. Uh, actually, both, um, both the Catholic Church and the Mormons, uh, Mormon Church, teach a form of this as well. Um, this belief really is at the root of nearly all liberal theology. Not liberal politics, liberal theology, they are different, uh, but it really is at the root of almost all of them. And uh, we've all heard some form of this. That view is even kind of taking root along uh, in a lot of evangelical circles, that somehow, in the end, God is um, not going to punish. God is not going to bring punishment on those who have rejected christ that you can call it what you want i've been calling it evangelical universalism um but um it's that that thought that idea is directly rejected by the apostle paul in this passage okay uh, closer to home uh, uh, Paul is rejecting another attitude that's held by uh, many who are, who are really professing believers. Uh, there are many who are part of the church who, uh, with their lips, they'll, they'll say, I believe in the gospel, I trust in Jesus Christ. But their lives radically contradict those claims. They say, I, I love Jesus, I, I worship him, he's Lord. And then they involve themselves in all sorts of horrible immorality and, and sinfulness and their unrepentance another charge that it, that he brings is that uh, though they have the law they don't know the law remember who the apostle is writing to the apostle is writing to uh, the jews that are in the church in rome at this time they're uh, they have a jewish background they're religious people they know right from wrong they know the law and um, and so what he's going to do is he's, he's going to address those who talk about the law and being saved by the law he says to his people, you don't live by, by the law. You might have the law, you might know the law, but you're not living by the law. You make all this noise about how you alone amongst all the peoples have been given the law of Moses, the, the one thing that sets you apart. You have it, you are set apart, but you don't do it. You rebel against it. You don't live by the law. You're condemned. In this passage, he continues, really, this, this relentless argument 
And Paul is responding to the objection of, we don't need the gospel. Thank you for your time, Paul. Thank you for your effort. Thank you for your concern. But we have the law. We don't need the gospel. We, we have the law. We don't need Jesus. We have the law, Paul. We don't need to be saved. Or we're not saved that way. We already are saved. Paul's kind of responding to that type of attitude, the people who would say something like that. We're going to hear his response in three parts. And we're going to be in Romans chapter 2, verses 12 to 16. The last service, I read the whole thing up front, but I think it's better to just kind of chunk it up into three parts. And so we'll read a few verses as we go um, in, in three parts. First, we're going to read verses 12 and 13. Okay, so verse 12 says this. It says, uh, i got to get to two. There we go. Uh, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Everyone will be judged by the law. That's what we're seeing first. Everyone's going to be judged by the law. Now remember, we talked last week, judgment and justification are two different things. Okay? Uh, You're not saved by the law, you're judged by the law. Okay? So, we will be condemned by the law. That's what, that's what we're seeing. We will be condemned by our works, we saw last week, uh, by our works that are, contra- that are contrary to the law. So as we rebel against the law, as we refuse to obey the law, we will be held accountable. We will be judged according to that. We'll be condemned by the law. Now bear in mind that throughout this section, Paul's main aim is to convict the heart of those Jews who have rejected the gospel. Again, they're, they're moral people, that they have a religious background, they know the law, they understand the law, but they reject Christ. They are faithless. The first half of chapter 1 is, about the, is an introduction and talks about the gospel. Then we see how uh, the pagans need the gospel and how the world needs the gospel. Then in chapter 2, we see how the Jews need the gospel. Yes, they have the law, but they still need the gospel. And then in Romans chapter 3, he's going to kind of summarize and wrap everybody up into one big uh, bundle of condemnation in order that, that they'll not seek to justify ourselves before God, but will instead run to God through Jesus Christ. And so the first three chapters of Romans, the point is, you're you're not righteous. You can't save yourself. You need the gospel. Whoever you are, wherever you are, whenever you are, when you read the first three chapters of the book of Romans, what you should come away with is, I am in desperate need of a Savior. I am not righteous. I can't do this on my own. I need the gospel. That's the message of the Apostle Paul in the first three chapters of the book of Romans. You need the gospel. He's trying to convict the Jews, again, who are saying, Paul, we have the law. We don't need your gospel. We don't need your Jesus. We're already saved. They felt secure. They felt secure in their national election and in their possession of the law of Moses. And Paul wants them really to be uncomfortable. He doesn't want them to settle. He doesn't want them to feel safe because they're not. He wants them to be insecure in order that they'll run to the only place of refuge, Jesus Christ. Paul wants to really unsettle them by pointing out that the law is not going to justify anyone. In fact, later in the book, we're going to see that the law, it was never even designed to justify anyone. 
Now, it's important to recognize throughout the passage, Paul's not teaching justification by works. Right? You're not going to be saved by your works. Some people will read this passage and they say, oh, that kind of sounds like Paul was saying, unless you do this, unless you're obedient, you won't be saved. But in actuality, Paul's point is really the opposite. Those who don't do this will not be saved. Get it? Your disobedience leads to condemnation, is what he's saying. Those who are unrighteous will certainly not be justified before God. Those who are characterized by a life of wickedness and evil and sin will be condemned. Why is he saying that? He's saying that because there are some people who think that simply by hearing the law or having the law, knowing the law, they will be declared right before God, righteous before God. That they'll stand acquitted before him in the last day. And Paul wants to emphasize that no sinner will be justified by the law, whether he's a Jew or a Gentile. Not a single person will be justified by the law. And so really what he's targeting here, he's targeting uh, hypocrisy and self-righteousness or self-justification. Either saying, I know the law and not doing it, or attempting to justify oneself by the works of the law, or just kind of white-knuckling it through life and saying, I can do this, I got it, I'll be obedient. I can justify myself. I don't need anyone else, including Jesus. I can do this. I can find this list of stuff that I have to do, and I can find this list of stuff that I have to stay away from, and I'm going to focus on these, and I'm never going to do these. I can justify myself with my action. That's who Paul's targeting. He brings up the distinction between hearers and doers. Jesus did this quite a bit uh, as well. Um, Especially in his parables, Jesus would talk about the doers and the hearers. Hearers and the, and the doers. Uh, he'd kind of bring up this distinction. Paul says, look, you, you have the law, but you don't follow it. You don't obey it. And yet you expect to be justified by the law, the law that you know that you don't obey. And the only way to be justified by the law is by doing it, by perfecting it. And not, not perfecting part of it, perfecting all of it. You probably, you probably should try another way. If you're claiming to be justified by the law, but you know that you can't do it, you know that you failed, you know that you've rebelled against it, you, you, you haven't done it perfectly, you haven't even done any of it, why, why would you think you'd be justified by it? Maybe you need another way to be justified. And Paul says that way is through Jesus Christ. That way, the only way to be justified is through Jesus Christ, through the gospel. His words not only have reference to the Jews of his own day, but they also, they also apply to us. They do. For us, if we cling to, to a religious profession of faith that's contradicted by our entire life, by the things that we do, we're really in the same awkward position as the Jews of Paul's day, presuming on God's mercy. We talked about this. Presuming on God's mercy while living in a way that shows we've never really understood or embraced the gospel. That we've never really understood sin. How evil and wicked and awful it is. You don't understand how wonderful the gospel is. You don't, know, you don't understand how gracious God is. If you, if you walked in Iowa when you were 12 at a youth rally and your life was never changed and you're involved in all sorts of sinfulness and you say and do all sorts of wicked things, then maybe you've never really understood the gospel. Maybe you've never really had a faith. Maybe you were just emotionally scared into walking a few steps forward. 
Paul emphasizes the fact that what counts both now and in the day of judgment is not whether people have possessed the law or have read it, but whether they have conducted their lives in accordance with its requirements, done what it says, been obedient. So for those people who expect to be judged right before God on the basis of how they have lived, if you choose that way, you better have perfected the law and not just part of it, but the entire thing. Otherwise, you're condemned. And let me tell you something. There's not a single person who has ever done that other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Not a single person has ever perfected the law, the entire law for their entire life. Jesus Christ is the only one. The Apostle Paul is, is basically beginning to lay an argument that there is no one who will be justified in that way. No one is justified by the law. Everyone falls short. And he's going to go into more detail later on in the book. But everyone falls short. None is righteous. No, not one. That's what we see. We, we could find a lot of examples to show, you know, people within the church that fall short. And, you know, I, I was looking at illustrations of, of people who profess to be Christians but do bad things. And to be honest, we don't need illustrations. We all know somebody like this, right? Uh, we all know someone who professes to be a Christian and says, yeah, I, I trust in Jesus. I'm a Christian. But their life shows absolutely no transformation. Their life shows absolutely nothing, right? I, I don't need to give you an illustration because for a lot of you, it's people that you know and love. And it's true for me as well. There are people I know and love who, who make this claim but really show no, show no transformation whatsoever. Paul's saying, don't rest and this generic idea that God is, is sort of going to weigh your life out, you know, on a scale of if the good things are over here and the bad things are over here, if the good things outweigh the bad, then you're good to go. That's not, that's not how God judges. God judges based on the law, and if you break the law, you're condemned, you're guilty. Everyone whose confidence is in the law and not in Jesus Christ is going to come up short, whether they are a Jew or a Gentile. If you don't know, a Gentile is pretty much anyone who's not a Jew, right? So this is be us, those of us in this room. It's an uncomfortable thing that Paul's saying here. What he is telling his readers is that you deserve condemnation. As you read this passage, what you should take away right here is that I deserve condemnation. I am guilty. I've sinned. I've broken the law. I deserve judgment, not grace, not mercy, not kindness. I deserve, because of my own actions, my own decisions, my own behavior, I deserve wrath. And that applies to every one of us. He's emphasizing that no one can stand before God as righteous just because they've heard the law or know the law. If you, if you intend to be justified by the law, then you have to do the law, as Leviticus says, but you, you, don't, you don't do the law. So why would you rest in it? In order to be justified by the law, you have to perfect the law in perfect obedience to the entire law. But we don't do that. So why on earth would we rest in it? Why would we think that our behavior would save us? Why would we think that the things that I can do can actually save me when in actuality what they do is they condemn me? So Paul says, if, if you have not done the law, 
And there's only one hope for you. And that hope is the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Your only hope is Jesus Christ. You stand condemned on your own. Your own behavior. You have done it. You you deserve condemnation. And your only hope is not the law, not your morality, not your behavior, but the gospel of Jesus Christ. The fact that the Son of God came and died on the cross for you to deal with the sins that you've committed, that is your hope, to put your trust and your faith and your reliance and your hope upon Him. It's your only hope. Stop trying to justify yourself. He's going to continue. He's going to continue in 14 and 15. Where he says this, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they're a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness to their conflicting thoughts, accuse or even excuse them. He continues his argument. And remember, Paul's, Paul's an excellent apologist. He knows how to defend the faith. And so he anticipates arguments and then uh, he refutes them before they come, okay? And so one of the things that he's doing here is he's refuting this question of, or this objection that, that's going to say, Paul, um, this isn't fair. This isn't fair. You say everyone's going to be judged by the law, even those who have never heard the law of Moses. How is everyone going to be judged by the law if everyone hasn't heard the law, right? This is, this is, like the guy in the Congo, right? The guy out in the middle of the jungle who's never met a Christian, never heard the law. How is he supposed to know? Paul, it's not fair. There's no way God could judge everyone by this standard. Paul says, everyone who is alive has the work of the law written on his heart. Our consciences, in other words, confirm to us that God's judgment against sin is real. And it's right. Paul, Paul really is stacking up here uh, condemnation on, on the, the, the Jewish uh, readers of, of, the original, uh, of the original letter. Right? Well, we have the law, therefore we don't need your gospel, Paul. We don't need Jesus. That's what they're saying to him. And he says, look, you're culpable by that law that you're boasting in. It, it makes you guilty. And this is important because we often hear this modern objection, the same kind of thing. Well, it's not fair to say that God will judge people. What about those who have never heard? Would, would God actually judge those out in the middle of the jungle somewhere? Would God judge those who have never heard? And Paul addresses that. Paul addresses it. Those who are saying it's not fair. Many people have never heard. He says, first asserts that there, there's no human being that does not have the law, does not have the things, the requirements of the law inscribed permanently on their heart. They know. They know right from wrong. That's what we're seeing here. They absolutely understand it. They, they can tell good things and bad things. Remember in, in Romans 1, in Romans 1, uh, I don't know, when we did it a couple months ago, uh, he said everyone knows God. Right? There's no such thing as an atheist. Everyone knows God. Right? They might not necessarily know the gospel or have all the information in order to be saved, but everyone knows God. Now he says, not only does everyone know God, but they know the law. In fact, the law is written on their hearts. The law is written on your heart. Okay? 
they know right from wrong. And Paul says, let me give you some evidence. Okay? Um, it, it, he, he, the scripture's not super clear, but let me illustrate it this way with, uh, with governments. Okay? Uh, well, you can look at pagan governments. You can look at uh, the American government or any government in the past. Right? But a good example of it is governments because in governments we see some things that are good. There, there's a lot of bad things that happen within government, but in a lot of governments there are some good things that happen, right? There's organization, there's feeding the poor, there's, uh, you know, some good things. You know, the, they know that um, in almost every single government in the world today, murder is against the law. Why? Because everyone knows that murder is wrong, right? A couple of years ago, it was like 10 years ago, or uh, actually it was more like 15 years ago, I was in Korea at the time, and there were some terrorists in Russia, and they came in, and they, uh, they took a, an elementary school. I don't know if you remember this. It was terrible. They took this elementary school, and there ended up being like 400 people that were killed. A lot of them were, were elementary school students, and pretty much the entire world at the time was just absolutely appalled that these terrorists would come in and kill children. Everyone understood that's evil and it's wrong and it's wicked and, and how could that ever happen? How could anyone ever be that evil? How, how did everyone in the world, almost everyone except for the terrorists, I guess, how did everyone in the world know that that action, the action of those terrorists killing those children was so wicked? The answer to that question is because the law is written on everyone's heart. That's why. He goes on to say in verse 15, he's saying their, their conscience confirms that they have the works of the law written on their hearts. From time to time, they feel guilty about the things that they've done or, or not done, right? And furthermore, not, not only their conscience, but, but their reflection on, on their conscience confirms that they have the works of the law written on their heart. It, you know, our conscience, as we, as we feel guilty of things that we've involved ourselves in, the sins that we've committed, or maybe, maybe we feel guilty because we haven't done enough, we haven't done the right thing. Our conscience is, is an indication that we have the law written on our heart. We know right from wrong, and that's not just my own view. God wrote it on my heart. So through all of this, Paul makes it clear that it's evident that God has, has written the works of his law on the hearts of everyone, every single person. So the old objection, what about those who have never heard? What about those who don't know the law, haven't read the law, haven't heard the law? It's self-defeating. Sometimes people will attempt to evade the gospel. And, and they'll say, but, but look, how can you say that people who have never heard the gospel are going to be condemned? The guy in the Congo has never heard the gospel. How on earth could God judge him and condemn him for something that he's never heard? And the answer is because they're not condemned based on the gospel. They're not. They're not condemned based on the gospel. Paul says they're condemned on the basis of the law. And Paul says also here in Romans 2 that the law is written on their heart. Everyone is guilty. No one has an excuse. No one has an excuse. They may not have heard the law with their ears or, or read it on a, on a book or a stone tablet or whatever. But they have the law written on their hearts. No one, no one has an excuse. He's going to go on in verse 16 to say that in the last day, according to his gospel, God will judge uh, the secrets of men. Verse 16. On that day, 
when according to the gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. We just said, uh, this, is, this kind of gets uh, heavy here, but um, we just said that Paul is, is arguing in 14 and 15 that God is going to judge not by the gospel, but by the law, right? Okay, and when he says that on the day when according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus, he's not saying that the gospel will be the standard by which he judges men on the last day. It's, it's not what he's saying. He's noting, however, that in uh, the preaching of the gospel, there is necessarily and kind of inherently a proclamation of God's judgment. As we share the gospel, as we, we understand the gospel, as we read the gospel, hearing the good news is also inherently declaring the judgment of God. And you think about this. If you preach the gospel, that though we're sinners and, and though we're rightly under the condemnation of God, but, but God in his mercy and his love sent a son who lived and died in our place, and that if we trust in him alone for our salvation that, he's, that is offered through the gospel, that we'll be saved. If we trust Christ, we're saved. He received the punishment for our sin, and we receive the acquittal. We, we receive the righteousness of Christ in that exchange. Right? That, that's, in a nutshell, the gospel. By saying that you're inherently committing yourself to the belief that God will judge, by, by believing in the gospel that we are saved, that Jesus endured God's wrath on our behalf, what you're inherently saying is that God will judge. And that those who are in Christ will be spared this judgment. They will not be condemned. And that those who are not in Christ will not be spared that judgment. In other words, the gospel inherently entails really the conveying of the doctrine of God's final judgment. And we have to understand that. The, the gospel doesn't negate judgment. The gospel doesn't negate wrath or justice. The justice of God's judgment will be revealed on the, when Christ returns, just as the mercy of God's judgment will be revealed on that same day. It's important, it's important for us to understand that because there are a lot of Christians who think that God's grace rules out eternal punishment or, or that God's grace rules out the final judgment. Paul absolutely begs to differ here. Paul says, no, it's far from it. God's grace requires judgment. Grace and mercy and, and kindness, uh, those are optional. Justice and judgment are not optional. And the very proclamation of grace requires a final judgment. Otherwise, it wouldn't be grace. The gospel inherently entails proclaiming the reality of a final judgment, the punishment for sin. There's this discussion that's been uh, kind of growing really over the last, I don't know, decade or so. Um, and, and whatever your views on this, it is really not my concern, uh, but uh, about the death penalty, right? And I'm not here to argue for the death penalty or against the death penalty. That's not the purpose. Um, but a lot of times we'll hear from within the Christian community a, a distorted way of thinking that goes something along this lines. It says, if we understood God's grace and mercy we would be opposed to the death penalty. Now, again, whatever you think about the death penalty, that, that's, that's irrelevant to me at this moment, right? But think about that argument. Think about what's underlying that argument. What, what's underlying it is that the idea of grace is the opposite of justice. 
Grace is not the opposite of justice. Injustice is the opposite of justice. Grace is not the opposite of justice. In fact, grace and justice work perfectly well together. Grace, they absolutely coexist within God. In fact, there could be no grace for us apart from the justice of God because God's grace for us is based on his enacting of his justice on his son. Right? When, when, when God uh, poured his wrath down on the Son, that was him enacting justice for sin. Jesus endured what you and I should have endured. If grace and justice are mutually exclusive, then the gospel is impossible. So it's important for us to recognize that when Paul says on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. It's important for us to know that you say, yes, we preach the gospel. Grace and justice work perfectly fine together. In fact, Paul's whole point here is to make people not trust in their own lives and their own works, but to run to Christ in the gospel. God's grace doesn't negate final judgment. In fact, the reality of his final judgment impels us to embrace grace. Don't think that somehow in the end, one part of God is going to be pitted against another part of God, because God, God's attributes and his actions never contradict one another. They're always in perfect harmony. So the apostles, Paul says, says not only does your conscience show that, that your lives will, will condemn you, but on the last day, your conscience your conscience will as well. You'll have, you'll have no hope forever. And so the apostle, he's taking away every single possible argument that we might bring up to him to say, Paul, thanks. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your concern. I don't need your gospel. I don't need Jesus. What Paul has already done is he's taken that argument. He's, he's taken our, our feet out from under us. Whatever our angle is, whatever reason we might say, Paul, I don't need your gospel. I'm doing just fine. Thank you very much. Paul's already defeated my argument. Because Paul knows that we need the gospel more than anything else. Paul knows that wherever you are, whenever you are, whoever you are, you need the gospel of Jesus Christ. Until we understand our deserving of judgment, until we understand that the, the wickedness and the seriousness of sin, until we believe that God's judgment is just, we'll never understand grace. So often, I, I hear um, sin described as, you know, well, when I was five years old, you know, I, I stole a pack of gum, and so, you know, I made this little mistake, so I'm guilty, I'm a sinner, which I guess is true, but that really minimizes what sin is. Sin is not an oopsie-daisy. Sin is not a tiny mistake that you make when you're a child and immature. What sin is, is a rebellion against God. It's shaking your fist at the Lord of the universe. It's turning your back on him. It's saying, I don't want you as Lord of my life. I want a Lord over myself. I want your throne and I want your crown. That's what sin is. And until we understand how wicked and evil it is, we will never understand God's grace. We will never fully be blown away by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ until we understand how awful our sin is. We cannot explain sin as some sort of mistake. It is a rebellion against the God of heaven. And until we understand how evil and wicked and awful it is, we will never understand what Christ went through for us. And we'll never accept him as our Savior. Until we recognize how evil and wicked sin is, we'll constantly be saying, well, 
you know, my sin wasn't that bad. And, you know, in my certain circumstance, I, I can explain away, you know, for most people that would be sin, but for me, because, you know, my circumstances are a little different, it's, it's not sin. No, sin is sin and sin is evil. Sin is filthy and it's wicked. And until we grasp that and understand that and realize that my sin, the sin that I've committed, the decisions that, the sinful decisions that I've made warrant God's wrath upon me, then we'll never fully understand the gospel. We can't. We'll never understand how amazing grace is. You can't fully understand how amazing grace is if you don't understand how wicked sin is. But it's, but it's because of the seriousness of sin and the reality of the final judgment that when we think about God's grace, we're blown away. I can, I can stand here and I can tell you I've involved myself in some horrible things, in sinful things, in rebellion against God. And I know that I deserve condemnation. And I know that you deserve condemnation as well. But the beautiful thing about our God the wonderful thing about our God is that even though I've, I've done horrible things in rebellion against him, he's shown grace and he's shown mercy and he sent a savior and he dealt with the sins that I've involved myself in. He's, Christ dealt with the sins that you've involved yourself in. Paul's saying, look, your only hope is to embrace Christ and the gospel. That's your only hope. Trust him. Trust in Christ, not in yourself. Right? Accept his life and his death in your place. Recognize that you, in and of yourself, standing before God, are going to be viewed as unrighteous. You cannot stand as righteous before God. Not on your, not on your own. Not by your own ability or your own works. But recognize that he and his love has accepted you and Christ faced, Christ faced condemnation for you. He did that for you. You trust him. If you trust him, you will never face condemnation. Never face condemnation. And that truly is amazing grace. It should blow you away, take your breath away, that the God of the universe would do this for you, do this for me. Sin is horrible and it's filthy. If we try to justify it in our own lives, it's just a demonstration that we don't fully understand the sacrifice of Christ. But when you start to understand how evil sin is, when you start to hate it in your own life, when you start to search your heart for sin and you begin the process of repentance and asking God to, to get rid of it and searching the scriptures and, and dealing with it and recognizing you stand before God and you say, God, I, I, know that I'm, I, I know I deserve your wrath. God, I know that you are good and you are righteous and I deserve your judgment. God, you are good and I, I deserve to be judged. When you can do that, and then you, think, then you go to the Gospels, and you read while Jesus is on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them. And the veil is torn, and everything changes. It'll take your breath away when you remember the wickedness of your own sin and that the holy God of the universe came and, and endured God the Father's wrath on your behalf. He paid the cost for your wickedness. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much for...
this morning. And God, we thank you that, that you are you're good and you're wonderful. And God, we thank you that, that um, we thank you that in Christ there is no condemnation. God, because we know that we deserve condemnation. We know that we deserve wrath. We know that we deserve to be judged. But God, we, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. God, I pray that if there's someone in here who doesn't know you, doesn't understand sin, doesn't understand your grace, doesn't understand the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and what was done on their behalf, God, I pray that you would reveal yourself to them. I pray that you would reveal their sin to them. I pray that you would break them over their sin. They would be disgusted by what's in their heart. And they would cry out to you. Cry out to Jesus, crying for a Savior. Father, we thank you that we have the perfect Savior in your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.